Can you guys see this? Yes. Whatever the virtues of the man field of knowledge, all accepts and effects the omniscience, and the ability to clear the mirror of incident. What would you truly please accomplish there? Caleb, take it away. Good evening, everyone. We'll begin this evening with uh, Q&A. Caitlin, you're first. I really, I, I was like trying to wait and then I forgot that we had to do the chance. So, okay, so my question is because I'm trying to declutter my life and organize it. And I have a lot of Dharma printouts that I have accumulated over the years of taking many a glorious class with you because I like to read things, you know, when they're printed out. So my question is, since it's kind of like Terma, I don't really know what to do with it because I kind of don't feel like I should just like trash it. I don't feel like, I, like, I, like I, I was like, do I shred it? Because that kind of feels bad. Do I put it in a box and bury it? Do I throw it in the river? Like, what do I do? Oh, what a cool question. Um, so, uh, can you show it to us? Jewish, one, one example. One example of what? What do you mean? Like how much stuff I have? Oh, show us whatever the stuff is. Like oh. one example of whatever the stuff is. Mm. Is like source books? Yes, also source books. Also source books. I had things that I printed out. If I like, couldn't get the source books, I, I like I need to have like a tangible thing to can read. You show, can you show it to us? Can you? I don't understand. Is this, like you don't believe me? No, I, I want to see what it is. Oh, like specifically, like a specific like text or something. Yeah, just hold one of them up. Okay, hold on. I gotta I gotta find one. Give me a sec. And Anya said she had the same question. Hold on. So tonight we uh, we continue with our discussion of matter, and uh, we'll start with um, an examination of matter in the form of source books. And the question is, um, we're going to use our analysis of uh, com comparing the relationships between different groups. And so before uh, we get the first example, we have um, here. We have Datus and Ayatanos, right? So Duff. we're all we're all familiar with those, right? There's six organs, sense organs. Those are those are part of what inner matter is that right? Everyone okay with that? And then there's outer matter, colors and shapes, sounds of various types and so forth, right? 
And then there's the consciousnesses that arise based on the, their coming together in the right way, which we'll get into. And uh, so we have these 12 ayatanas or 18 datus, and we're trying to understand how our reality functions, how our world works. And so we're piecing it, separating it into pieces and looking at each of the pieces individually as entities because for us there's that's all they are there's no there's no other way that they can be other than actual separate independent entities uh, interdependent entities rather sorry and so the question is um give me a color give me an example of a color caitlin blue blue Okay, so uh, what's the relationship between the color blue and the blue books in your home or blue objects in your home? What's the relationship between those? Are they identical, the color blue and all the blue objects in your, in your apartment? Um. Are they the same? Are they totally separate? Or do they overlap in some way? Aren't they all completely arbitrary based on like who's looking at them? No, they're all blue based on the valid cognition that we all oh, have. Oh, oh, okay, okay, that kind and, of a thing. And so there's the color blue. How did this become a test? I don't understand. I had a question about whether I was allowed to. Well, we're getting there. It's such a great question. Okay. So, um, Let's say you have all these Dharma books. What's the relationship between the color blue and all those Dharma texts that you don't know what to do with and you can't, you don't you don't have room for? What's the relationship between them? What are they? Are those Dharma texts in terms of this schedule? Are they the organ of sight? Are they the organ of hearing? They're mentation. They're mental conscious. No, they're they're tactiles. I don't know. What are they? I don't know. Can you touch one? I've mm -hmm. asked you to show us an example. Can you show us an example? So there. Okay. So here's one. Oh, okay. So um, you held it up with your hands and it appeared to be, can you describe its physical appearance? Um, uh, printed plastic cover, it's really thick on the side. What colors? What White, black letters is it is it long or short or square or round or or what shape rectangular is it? it's rectangular mm -hmm. and um is it smooth or rough these are like the questions i asked the pre-k kids it's like smooth and then there's parts where you know it's bumpy it's bumpy and which what color is that part that's bumpy black and um is it does it smell does it have a smell? Usually it does when you first get them. They smell really good. Totally. Oh, it made a sound though when you ruffled it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. Uh, Are you saying I have to keep all of these? No, no, no. I don't care what the hell you do with them. I'm just trying to use them as an example. Got it. It's up to you what you do with your books. I don't mind. Okay, well, okay, but can I pause this and then I give you the second part of the conversation or question? I don't know that we've oh sure sure did we answer the first part 
sort. I already kind what, of the the question is what are they? Are they tastes? No, they're books. They're books. So what are books? Are books written down thoughts and spoken words? They're mentation, they're, mental consciousness. They're mentation objects? Well, I mean books the, what's inside the book. They're they're what's inside the book. In what way are they inside the book? It's just paper, right? Yeah. I meant more like ideas. But where are the ideas? I don't know. In between the words? What are, where are the words? Any anybody want to help her? Do you want to like ask for it like a lifeline? Like <laughs> anybody have an phone idea? a friend? Like give me what are those things that she's holding? Are they sounds? Are they colors? What's the relationship between the color blue and the object she's holding? I would say there's an it's the overlapping relationship. That um, some some blue phenomena are also the phenomena that she's holding up. Is that what you're saying? Right. I'm saying that probably some of the books, I mean, she's most of them are probably white just because that's what she showed, but there could be some that are blue. And so if there are some that are blue, then they would be in a um, mm. like overlapping relationship where an overlapping whatever, relationship. Well, so I'm sorry, of all blue objects, I guess they would be a subset of all blue objects. Sorry. Uh -huh. And um, are they colors? Well, they are shape and color. <sighs> They're shape and color. And um, so they just sort of float in space, these colored shapes. Um, I would say that they actually tend to sit on other surfaces that are other objects. They probably don't float in space so much. And so they are, of these six, the actual uh, oh, spiral-bound notebook that she held up, the spiral-bound book that she held up the spiral bound object that she held up. What is it? Is it a taste? Is it is a color? Is it a sound? Well, I would say from the point of view of her holding it, it would be tactile. But from the point of view of us looking at it on the screen, it would be colors and shapes. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Thank you very much. <laughs> so where does the mentation come in? Because isn't that kind of part of it too? No. So there's tactile objects that you were you held one up. You could touch. So it. I'm getting bogged down and like, okay, it. I see. Okay, I, it's you could hold. That, it's supposed that to be more object. concrete. I get it. Okay, okay. Right, we're being like totally concrete and literal, simplistic. Right, it's an object. It's a tactile object. Right. Less conceptual. Okay, okay. And and what's the what's the uh, relationship between that object? and the color that, that you can hold, and the color white. Those books that you can hold, and the color white. All of your books, and the color white. What's the relationship? Yeah, the group of books that you're concerned with, and the color white. Um, I don't know, but I feel like I'm really monopolizing. I don't mean to do that. Yeah. Okay. So I, you uh, what's can, the you, second part of your question? Oh, so it what the second part was that I also found some random like Buddha, like statues and things like one that I had bought at a PetSmart, 
one that I think I got anybody, it. Like anybody have an answer for her? And then hold on, but there's there's an added part to this because I got. We have a lot of material to go through tonight. I have a lot of questions. I I could have had this as an interview, but I had decided to ask you right now. Sorry, guys. It really doesn't matter what types they are. The the first question. There used to be a concept of what they called vajra trash, which is that if you had dharma materials. The ideal thing to do would be to burn it or have it burned somewhere. Yeah, okay. so you didn't have to, you know, throw it in the muck and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I believe that because of the difficulty these days of trying to burn everything, not everybody has access to being able to burn. I believe that the teachers have said that it is okay to shred things as well. Is that okay. understanding, Derek? Sounds good to me. Burning is the is the uh, preferred method. Uh, I think we used to sometimes take things like karma trolling has a... Otherwise, just recycle them. Yeah. Be environmental about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can shred and recycle. That That's how it kind of works with both uh, the destruction part and the recycling environmental part. So, so now we're back to Derek's material. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, Derek. Sorry, guys. So let's start with a bow. So, um, let's see. Um, so, um, we don't need to spend a lot of time and go through all of this stuff in detail because the main point is not necessarily to like memorize and uh, somewhat at this point archaic way of classifying and categorizing the phenomenal world and um, but the main point is learning how to think really clearly about our experience so you saw that example of like, what is an object? What is the object of our senses when we talk about things? We see colors and we believe that there's like objects that have these colors. And in, in this way of analyzing the, the phenomenal world, these are separate at, attributes. That there's a tangible object that has a certain weight, shape, and size. And that tangible object has various colors, uh, sorry, various attributes. It has colors, it has smells, it maybe sounds, makes sounds when, when things happen to it, or like um, certain phenomena naturally make sounds. And uh, so we don't say like it's a, um, it's a sweet-smelling flower. We wouldn't call a sweet-smelling flower, oh, a sweet-smelling flower. But somehow we're really fixated on colors, and we connect colors and tactile objects in a way that blurs them together and produces this projection of there being a possessor of those attributes called in this case a book right so we're trying 
we're going to this great length to do two things in going through all these definitions and categorizations. One is we're just trying to strengthen our mind and our intellect and our way of looking at our experience objectively and in detail. So I handed out, a, I circulated another reading that I thought had some helpful little quick excerpts. I'll just show that briefly. We were first taught, so this is uh, somebody recounting their experience in uh, learning the system of Tibetan debate using this material that we're studying now, which is the material that's used for learning how to debate and debate it as a certain of uh, methodology that's designed to help us um, understand the material in, in a very clear way and to sharpen our minds so that we're critically examining our experience instead of uh, habitually accepting information into the same old framework, right? So we're taught the easiest subject, the relationships between the four primary and eight secondary colors are explained carefully and we learn how to apply simple logic reasoning to them. While the subject of colors and their relationships are very simple, it's the manner of phrasing the question and debate that trains the mind. So there's this amazing link as I, you know, we know, but maybe don't appreciate enough between the way that we verbalize things and the way that we think about them in, and, and the way that both of them are attempts to, to describe or understand or analyze our world, our experience of some, some supposed world. And so through the debate process or through learning this material, learning the definitions and the format of the definitions and learning the different categories, we're learning how to be, and in particular, learning about the relationships. How do we compare uh, phenomena? We're learning to be really precise about what we're, we're talking about in our world. This, uh, the manner of phrasing and, and questioning and the and debate becomes very interesting and challenging. And so once we've had, had mastered it, our intelligence developed somewhat. <laughs> it's a little bit of a funny phrase. These debates on colors and so forth as the first introduction to debate and form lives recently are simple and straightforward beyond teaching the form and procedure of the debating process. They offer little content. Still, there's a purpose for beginning the reasoning text with a presentation of colors and other forms because using this as a basis, one's able to progress toward higher, more profound topics. So the purpose is to train the potency of the mind so that one will be able to penetrate difficult objects at the beginning. The study of reason would be difficult to prove the existence of omniscience and the existence of liberation. Now, we don't normally approach Buddhism from that point of view, but uh, if, you, if you really want to understand the nature of reality, which is, uh, from some points of view, is the basic strategy for, for becoming uh, a happier and better person, is by understanding the true nature of reality, otherwise known as becoming enlightened, then you it helps, it actually helps to uh, have confidence that it's possible. And now we all like talk as if we accept that. You know, sure, the Buddha's enlightened, Trump Rimshe, oh, he's enlightened, this, this teacher's enlightened. But we actually don't have a lot of confidence in enlightenment. Um, 
and confidence in enlightenment and the possibility of enlightenment is one of the most helpful things in the path of dharma and so through this process we actually come to understand what is enlightenment and how does enlightenment sort of work and thereby it increases our confidence in that and our ability to become enlightened which actually is one of the most helpful ingredients for meditation and understanding our mind and world. So uh, for the sake of understanding, we initially go through impermanent, non-permanent, impermanent phenomena, objects of comprehension in order to understand and debate the extension of pervasions with regard to such topics. So pervasions are the relationships, the four relationships are the identical are they exclusive mutually exclusive are they overlapping or is one included in the other um, it's necessary to first settle this in relation to phenomena that can be seen with the eyes as well as others such as sounds you know things that we can experience and perceive very simple on a totally down-to-earth level with our valid cognition we're not starting with karma or you know really difficult topics we're just trying to understand the framework of um, these comparisons and the logical way of looking at them as a way of getting really clear about like what is mind what is illusion ignorance what is wisdom and so forth and what what's happening when we meditate what's happening when we have cognition and so forth so forth that is in relation to the objects of direct perception from among these we're most involved with color thus we start with color And by training in easier topics, one gradually advances and is eventually able to handle the more difficult. And this is the reason why the presentation of white and red colors is given at the beginning. If this purpose is not understood, one might think it is senseless to talk about white and red colors. You know, their way of like white and red is an example of their color system which you know has doesn't have the so-called correct primary colors and the secondary colors are bizarre and the way that they divide the other objects is, is sort of bizarre so it, it's a matter of uh, uh, this way of learning how to think and then um, in particular learning that um, the objects of the senses are independent so when, when we're holding a white book with a black spiral bound coil, we think there's a book that is white. <laughs> uh, but we have to think that there's a, um, a tangible object source. You know, if you want to add the, comp, the convoluted language, it's uh, an ayatana. It's, it's the object of tactile sensation and it has a certain color it it uh um has um what's the term appropriated a certain color it's appropriated a certain smell and shape and so forth but we we um immediately think there's an, a unity to them that is in this case the book could, could I and, so, and so we're going in great detail to take that book apart and see it's there's there's all these different objects when we what we call a book is all these different objects 
Sorry, Cynthia. I just wondered when you just said that you were saying it has a color and then you changed that to it has appropriated a color. Could you just say something about? We believe that there's the, an object called a book and um, that that has appropriated these attributes. And so we're one, one of the main things we're doing is we're trying to unravel this projection of there being an entity called a book. Right, that part I understood. So, I just couldn't understand why you used the appropriated seemed like a, I, I wasn't sure why that's made a difference. Well, we, we think that phenomena uh, consists of an entity and then qualities that it appropriates. So I've appropriated certain habit patterns as have each of you. Um, books appropriate different colors, different shapes. So you could color that, you know, you could dip that book in some dye and it would have a completely different color. It would appropriate that color. And then you would hold it up and everyone would say, that's a red book. And the whiteness, where would the whiteness be? You know, it's like underneath that red is white. <laughs> There's a white book underneath the red book. Okay, so let's, let Eric. Eric disappeared. Okay, yeah, I, have a, I have a question. Um, so I understand what you're saying about sort of dis, disaggregating the characteristics. So we don't just embody them all as this unified object. But isn't there another line, and maybe we use this line of psychology differently, where we talk about coming into contact with an object and then discriminating its characteristics, where we kind of talk in the Buddha Dharma, I feel like we've used this other language, that's exactly what you say, maybe as a skillful means, at that point we use that language, where we use this language. It is, it's a skillful means, and that, thank you for emphasizing this. Initially we we uh, reify the image. We sort of exaggerate our natural process of reification and in order to expose its fallacy. So thank you for that, yeah. But, oh wait, hold on, I have one more. This is, so the reason that I couldn't answer the questions though is that is this the part where you jump to like the observer effect? So like, is there anything actually there? Does anything actually exist unless somebody sees it? Or did I, is that not connected at all? Oh, so that would go back to what's the definition of a, of a, of a phenomena, of an object, of an existent object, right? And so you would look that up and let's see, let's take the, uh, the root text on it and classification of in terms of their entity of, of uh, phenomena. Phenomena is, uh, there's objects, knowable objects, existent, established, base, object of comprehension. All of these are equivalent. And in terms of their entity, there's things and non-things and things. The meaning of it, the definition of a thing is that which is able to perform a function it is as follows. Any phenomena that performs the function of producing its own specific result, such as later moments of its own continuum. 
So would you say that a tree in a forest that's not observed by anyone is a thing, regardless of whether it's observed or not? Is it, is it capable of producing its, is it a phenomenon that performs the function of producing its own results, such as later moments of its own continuum? I see one nodding head. Thank you, Christopher. Right, so a tree is, produces the next moment of its continuum of being a tree, regardless of whether anybody observes it or not. I had the experience of being hit in the head with an acorn that fell from a tree today. So yes, it can, it's also producing its offspring. <laughs> it's means of continuum. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then secondly, it can, it can perform the function of producing a consciousness apprehended that specific phenomenon. So that means, is a tree perceptible? Is the tree perceptible? It doesn't say is somebody currently perceiving it or not. That doesn't matter. In this system, trees exist, regardless of whether somebody perceives them or not. Um, last week we got cut short. Uh, you know, there there are actually very interesting aspects of these various phenomena that are. The, uh, the objects of our senses and that make up the sense faculties as well. Um, but it would take quite a bit of time to go through them all, so I'm going to try to touch on, it, on things as we go. But um, think about like, what are they trying to accomplish in the way that they're describing things? And um, how did they come about uh, accomplishing their goal? given their root, somewhat rudimentary uh, um, resources from a modern scientific point of view, you know. So I'm on page uh, 104, and uh, there's this notion of sound. There's this paragraph, now if we were to investigate the statement that sound does not possess a type continuum, so... Um, it's a little frustrating they haven't told us about continuums yet and the different types, but there's different types of continuums. There's the continuum of the uh, of a phenomena. We just saw a thing is that which has the capability of producing the next moment in the series of its own continuum. So there's that continuum. And uh, type continuum means that there's continuums that are of a similar nature. They're a similar type. So trees are all of a type continuum. And um, there's also name continuums. There's things that have similar names, but are actually vastly different phenomena. So there's, um, on the one hand, each language has a different word, a term for every phenomena. And um, then there's words that have different reference that mean different things based on the circumstance. Um, but here we have the statement that sound does not possess a type continuum appears to be a plausible explanation. 
So we're going to investigate that. He says, with respect to other matter, material things, it is through the accumulation of similar type atoms that coarse level composite entities come into being. So this is one of the things they're struggling with is that they believe that matter is real. And it turns out that describing matter as being real turns out to be one of the more difficult tasks in the whole system. And you can see that it's leading to the the uh, matcha or mind only system because it's so much easier to describe everything as mind because mind is very easy to describe as we'll get to later from compared to matter because matter we see only conglomerations of matter and we we can break it down to a certain point but then we can't um, perceive it when it gets smaller or subtler and so um, we we have to make a, a, a inferential analysis based on our experience of conglomerate matter that there is subtle particles or um, uh, sort of fundamental particles that make up conglomerate matter you know absent the the uh, particle colliding machines that we now build for billions of dollars five mile underground circular things where they smash atoms at each other you know the it's completely reasonable to to us to conclude that there's there's some particles that make up the conglomerate matter but they can't see them they've never no one's ever seen them um but um how do these things combine together to create composite matter then becomes one of the big mysteries that like at, at what point are they this you know perceptible matter the the subtle particles is really a quandary right and how do they come together and 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 then you drill into it as the madhyamakans do and you know do they take up space so they have sides and it becomes a logical fallacy but we're not there yet but um with respect to other material things, it's through the accumulation of similar type atoms that coarse level composite entities come into being. One could posit a type continuum for these entities on the grounds that preceding moments transforming into subsequent moments occur because these physical phenomena emerge through the accumulation of subtle particles and increase in size as they develop into coarse phenomena. They're trying to describe the process by which subtle particles conglomerate together and produce matter that supports you know that obstructs that does what well, they've defined matter as that matter obstructs it's damaged it's impermanent and and so forth but subtle particles um they've never perceived them so how can they prove that they obstruct and they have to conclude that only by inference that the the particles that make up obstructive matter must be obstructive um, anyway um, in contrast even when there's an accumulation of similar type particles sound does not increase in material size so sound is the object of the ear sense and it's made of matter it's part of form in the in the broader sense and you know that form is a tricky term because it applies to different sort of parts of the material world right so if, if we look at our um chart of 
Sadatus and Ayatanas. Uh, which of these are, are matter? The sense organs are matter, and the sense objects are matter, except for um, the organ of mental activity. The mind is not matter, and mentation is not matter. So 10 out of these 12 are matter and two are mind. And at the same time, form um, is also the term that's used for the object of uh, the visual sense organ. And it's also uh, the object of the object of touch sometimes used as that. So the term form is not that spe uh, specific. It has various uh, uses, util uh, utility. But all of these are matter. So matter is a, a more clear term than form. And uh, so sound, like all matter, must be made of subtle of particles, particles of sound that conglomerate together and produce uh, and thereby create uh, perceptible form which in this case is something you can hear. So when there's really subtle sound that you can't hear, there's not enough particles of sound to make it audible, right? Same with smell and so forth. And with vision, when the, there's just a few particles of blue, you can't see blue until there's like a certain number of particles that's not specifically determined. Um, Regardless of however loud or soft its volume may be, sound exists in dependence on the size of the airwaves that constitute its supporting medium. Thus, although there's no basis, so first they have airwaves, <laughs> which is interesting. And um, although there's no basis for speaking about the size of the sound itself, um, still, such questions require further examination. In any case, sound possesses the essential nature of a wave. So, you know, they were not able to measure the size of waves, which I guess now we can measure the size of waves in terms of their, what, frequency of oscillation or something. How do we measure sound? Like, what's a big sound compared to a small sound? Anyone? Does it have a higher frequency? No, that's a high-pitched tone, right? Versus a low-pitched tone. It has a frequency, but then an amplitude. An amplitude, is, which, which is sort of like... The amount of energy behind it. So yeah, it's like the amount of air that's being pushed or compressed by whatever produced the sound, right? You know, so we can sort of... Can we, can we measure, you know, the, the volume of that sound? <laughs> Sort of, <laughs> kind of, sort of. Uh, it's it's a little hard to determine. So, like, so frequency is the distance between the two humps. That's right. the frequency. Right. The amplitude is how high, and so that. But but our 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 uh, can we construction our construction of sound is consisting of waves. You know, to what extent does that um, apply to the reality of sound? Are there literally like sound particles that are coming towards us in a wave? Or 
are there waves of sound you know it's it's this difficulty of you know even in science it's very hard to describe these things this light particles you know is the red color is it a wave or a particle um so they're grappling with these things they're trying to figure out you know there's macro and micro basically and just like in physics it's like totally different worlds and how do the you know how do you create a general relativity theory that brings the two together is very difficult so in any case sound possesses the essential nature of wave for example sound is indeed like ocean waves that appear to ordinary perception to move as a progression of earlier and later waves it's amazing they got that far you know that they realized sound is a wave and so there's earlier sounds you know so so basically then in the space around us, there's sound waves that are rippling out from the source of any sound. As you ring a bell, those sound waves ripple out, and there's newer ones that are closer to the source of the sound, and there's later ones that are going out and they diminish in sizes. You know, they're trying to vis like visualize or conceptualize how does sound exist. It appears that the force of earlier waves newly generates later waves and that earlier waves themselves transform into later waves, you know, so this, um, but in reality, such waves never reach the shore, you know, like when you go to the beach and the water in a wave, you know, 50 yards from the beach, it looks like that water comes to the beach, but that water doesn't, that water stays there and you know, the momentum of water pushing water takes, you know, certain shape, right? The water doesn't actually move that much. Um, so if two, if one takes a loud sound, such as the one produced from striking a gong, the force of the sound of the first moment determines how long the sound will endure that the sound of later moments arises from the force of the sound of earlier moments and the oscillation of air its medium may be inferred from the example of the way but this should be examined you know we should think of this does this make sense how do we describe sound it's like bizarre right and then they have this way of distinguishing sounds that have meaning and sounds that don't have meaning you know, for them that was very significant it's like how does sound which is matter convey meaning and that was part of also what i was getting at with caitlin and trying to like bring out is like you say that these are dharma books no they're they're just paper you know that has the color white and they have a black coil and the paper has black little lines printed on them right all over the pages there's black lines that we call letters you know and they're in a certain assemblage and those letters somehow convey meaning to us and we think oh this is a dharma book this is precious you know and this is my phone book i can do whatever the fuck i want with it and you know so but they're both paper with black swiggly lines on them so they also struggled with what is dharma is what is the, what is uh, a sutra you know and they went back and forth at different schools some of them was saying was saying that the sutras dharma is a material object because they were fixated on the way on the the reproduction of the meaning in words on a physical page that conveyed information to people through which people attained enlightenment people would read stuff and they would gain enlightenment so what was the cause you know the you know, so Dharma texts when you make a shrine are the highest objects. But 
is the dharma you know a material object obviously no it's a mind and it's an object of mind and what's the relationship between the words on the page and the dharma is not an easy thing to to describe linguistic sounds and then they have this further oddity where they have sounds by an, an aria an enlightened person and a non-aria you know what is that about why are they dividing that you know it's like an enlightened person's speech somehow has a different status than any old schmuck on the streets language you know it's like the they get into these fascinating uh, quandaries and one of the most amazing things is is that they go about while they while on the one hand they're going about this whole analysis in as a, as scientific a way as possible they are also describing things that for us are not science mental object forms and this whole thing of indicative form the form of a vow or a promise for them is like a form and the ability to uh, experience things in absorption state that function like form and allow you to walk in space or over water were generally accepted realities for them and so they have to describe them and it's like they go about describing them in the same you know with the same tenor as everything else that they're describing and, and just that, I think, is amazing that they were, you know, this is their worldview. They live in the world of samsara <laughs> that has enlightened beings and beings they can't see and, you know, all sorts of things. Anyway, so we go through smell on page 105. Smell has <laughs> back to, the, you know, subdued reality. Smell has four types, pleasant, unpleasant, uniform, and non-uniform. I don't even freaking know what the uniform and ununiform was. Uh, and then we have tastes. We have six tastes. And uh, somebody else has a further number of tastes. You know, he's drawing from Vasubandhu's auto-commentary to his Abhidharma Kosha, Rabashya. And then he draws from a Sangha, or this author, whoever the unfindable author is who is sort of like the book the author of this book doesn't exist but we attribute authorship to some author and um uh like the number of tastes on page 107 there's there, uh this one may differentiate six tastes within each of the six basic tastes such that there are 36 different tastes and also these can be further differentiated on the base of um, three qualities beneficial to the tongue that do not harm the body consciousness when food is digested and that bring benefit to the body and mind when they're digested so then we have oh 108 types of taste what a what a what a coincidence it just happens to be the most sacred number in buddhism <laughs> i love that one and then a sangha he has uh, 12 types of tastes and we don't have any magical numerology unfortunately for that then we have tactile entities and tactile entities are one of the hardest phenomena to describe so on page 108 on the bottom there uh, that which is the field of experience or tactile object of body consciousness is called the tactile sense base such as for example the four primary elements so we can 
we can touch the four primary elements. And this, this becomes a, a debated issue. Can you touch the elements or do you touch the conglomeration of them? So uh, first from Stiramati, who was Vasubandhu's main disciple, objects of contact are the primary elements and then material forms derived from those primary elements. Thus they're classified in terms of this twofold division. On the bottom of the page, as for derivative form, in general, one can refer to anything that is produced on the basis of being derived from the primary elements of derivative as derivative form. And basically our world is made up therefore of derivative form. Um, Sangha has a, a, a sort of uh, detailed gloss on that that I'm going to skip. Um, but actually, we have examples of the first type. So derivative form caused by the primary elements. An example is a, is a vase or a pillar that come into being on the basis of having the four primary elements as their cause. Second is derivative form, whose designations ultimately depend on the primary element. And examples of the second are those that ultimately depend on the primary elements for their designation include subtle particles. And um, so what's the relationship between subtle particles and the great four elements? You know, how did we describe that? Uh, we'll come to that. Um, uh, examples of the third chat, let's see. Oh wait, I gotta read through this. Um, for when the primary elements exist, and I, this is the second type, the possibility exists of designating something as a material form. And when that is possible, designations such as subtle particles become possible. Therefore, even these subtle particles are called derivative forms since ultimately it's on the basis of the primary elements that the designation of subtle particles exists. So subtle particles and the primary elements are different. They're related in this way, but they're different entities. Nevertheless, they are not derivative forms in the manner of composite entities such as the vase which exists as a collection of primary elements. The manner in which mental object forms such as open space and the form derived through a right such as a vow are posited as derivative is similar to the previous example of subtle particles. That, um, in this case he's saying that are made up of uh, on the basis of the primary elements. Examples of the third type, which is derivative form that's perceived in dependence on taking the primary elements as objects. Examples of the third type, so I'm uh, flitting between the top of the page and other parts of the page. Now I'm on the second full paragraph. Examples of the third type which are derivative in the sense of being perceived on the basis of taking the primary elements as objects of focus include the form derived through meditative experience. And the quote says, any physical entity belonging to a mental object form. So they've come up with this this type of form that's a mental object, which is a non sequitur, is completely in, internally contradictory. And yet they, they're they just trying to like figure out how to describe the experience of form in the, the trance states. 
And what is that phenomena that is experienced in the trance states? Um, so any physical entity, the quote, belonging to a mental object form that is a result of meditative attainment should be recognized as being dependent on meditative attainment only, alone. As such, it is not dependent on the great elements because it is established from single-pointed concentration that focuses on images similar in type, meaning their mind. It is said to be derived from the great elements, but mental object form does not arise in dependence on them. So Sangha is dismissing this type of form as being form and saying, this is just mind. Thus the form arising from meditative expertise is described as derivative form. It's, de it's derived from real form since it appears only in a meditative concentration that takes the primary elements object. The focus is not derivative in the sense of being defined independence on the great objects, on the great elements, or whatever that says. Yeah. Uh, there's seven types of derivative tangible forms on the 110, smoothness, roughness, and so forth. Um, and some odd ones. Look, I mean, look at the different types of form. Smoothness and roughness are sort of what you would expect as possible ways of describing tangible form, right? Then we have heaviness and lightness, I guess their weight. And then we have what? Cold, <laughs> hunger, and thirst. How do those fit in? You know, they're trying to describe the feeling that, that the body feels when we're cold. I don't know, when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, it's a physical feeling, it's a physical sensation. You know, so think about what is it that they're describing? Their, their world is not the sort of uh, stark materialistic world that we have been brought up in. Uh, but let's continue to skip about... Um, on the right-hand side, so page 111, the Sangha's Compendium of Dharma states, so he adds even more weird ones, smoothness, roughness, lightness, heaviness, suppleness, softness, <laughs> so flexibility, softness, rigidity, cold, hunger, thirst, satisfaction, robustness, weakness, fainting, fainting, <laughs> weakness, shuddering, slipping, sickness, aging, death, fatigue, rejuvenation, and resilience. <laughs> these are these are tactile object forms. Um, these 22 derivative tangible forms are in one way or another encompassed within the seven types of tactility. The seven were from Vasubandhu on the page before. In one way, uh, suppleness refers, for example, to the texture of silk. Softness refers to the texture of wool. So these tangible forms are included in either smoothness or lightness. Rigidity, for example, refers to the tactile sensation of iron or stone that does not depress and squeeze. Satisfaction refers to the sensation felt when satisfied by food and drink or the tactile experience, sensation experience when the elements are balanced. Robustness, you know, so all these, all these physical sensations that we have are being categorized as types of tangible object form, which is very, very odd. Uh, let's see, going, uh, progressing through to the next page, 112, finished up with resilience. Um, let's, and then skipping to the last paragraph on 112, which is the end 
of the presentation of matter of um, outer objects. Thus, in the text of the lower Abhidharma system, which is Vasubandhu's system, visible form is enumerated in types in terms of 20 types, sound and eight, smell and four, taste and six, tactility and 11. The four primary elements and seven derivative forms. So he was, he, he's sticking to the simple system of Vasubandhu, basically, this, this textbook. This textbook's giving you all these other versions of it, but they're sort of coming back to uh, ground zero is the, the version presented by Vasubandhu in his Abhidharma Kosha and its commentary, which had four primary elements and seven tangible forms of the objects of tactility. And then he gives the text of the, uh, the uh, upper Abhidharma system of Asanga as comparison. So then we have the five sense faculties, which is very simple and quick. Uh, the five faculties, such as the eyes, exist as clear internal sense organs that cannot be dissected into parts nor weighed by scales, since they are like light, extremely translucent. So sense faculty form is called translucent form. It's um, able to mediate between form and consciousness. Really miraculous thing. And so I circulated a description of how uh, visual consciousness works. And uh, if you get a chance to read that, please do. It is actually turns out to be a, a description of how vision works for people creating visual programs on computers. <laughs> which I didn't quite expect, but um, it actually has a good description of how vision works. And uh, um, it, it also had, uh, let's see. It also, oh, um, yeah, I think it was this one, had this wonderful uh, uh, little diagram. So, what do you do? You see anything in this diagram? Anybody? It yes. looks like a random arrangement of black shapes. So, don't say it yet. Let let other people experience it. What do you see in here? Okay, they say there's a face in there. Can you see it? Do you all yeah. see it? Yeah. Do you feel the shift that happened when you noticed the face? Where first you didn't really notice it, and then you see it, and it's like really clear. It's like you can't miss it, right? But uh, that's what I experienced, is I had to search for it at first. And then it's like, I can't believe I had to search for it. Did anyone else have that experience? Yeah, so I was looking all around, and... And then, yeah, and now I can't see the rest of it. I just see the face. Yeah, yeah. So once the face is discovered, very rapid perceptual learning takes place and the ambiguous picture now obviously contains a face each time we look at it. We've learned to perceive the stimulus in a different way. So our visual system like learns from uh, experience and then it, it projects its assumption of what it thinks it's going to see onto what we see. And that was in, I think, the other article. 
um, which I don't think I can find it, but it made that point that basically our senses end up perceiving things the, the way that we think we're going to see them, which you know has been demonstrated over and again, over again by scientists investigating um, uh, how different people view different different events. They literally see different things. And then, and then, of course, we have uh, magic eye. So, uh, can you guys see what's in here? Can Can you guys do magic eye? Anyway, you can either do it or not, but if you can do it, it's it's this amazing shift that happens in your eyes. And, a, and the image emerges, like totally emerges, and just like that black and white thing that we just looked at, then you look at it and you're like, oh, there it is. Oh, I got it. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> All right. If you start really close to it and let your eyes blur and then you slowly back up and don't try to make your eyes come back into focus, you'll get it. Uh, you kind of Good. slowly bring. Yeah. Good way to describe it. Anyone else? Okay. Never mind. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, you know, but the the visual system. Uh, so, um, just to spend a few minutes on the description of it was fascinating. I thought. So here it gave us. Here's how the eye work. You know, just for take one sense and and try to figure out how does vision actually occur. So we have these things. Here's the eyeball. Here's the optic nerve where everything's collected goes out the back. The iris is the little uh, like uh, curtains on the side of the pupil. There's a lens, and uh, there's a cornea that covers the, the uh, lens. And then there's this retina in the back that's lined with cells, and they all exit through the optic nerve. And then you have these muscles on the sides. And by the way, the muscles, there's four muscles, one on each of the cardinal directions. And so we can very easily move our eyes from side to side and up and down. But if you do the um, intermediate directions, it's very clunky, actually you have to operate two muscles at the same time in a different way than than they're they're not really made for fast movement so um the eye focuses light onto the retina there's a layer of photoreceptor cells which are designed to change light into a series of electrochemical signals to be transmitted to the brain and this is one of the miracles of nature it's transforming light into electrochemical yeah, um, information let's say plants do this in photosynthesis somehow and eyeballs do this and, and you know it's like these two phenomena in our world plants and eyeballs do this with light it's really amazing 
There's two types, rods and cones. Rods are found in the peripheral areas of the retina are just designed to respond to low levels of light. They're responsible for night vision. And because of where they're placed on the retina, you can improve your night vision by learning to focus slightly to the side of whatever you're looking at, allowing the light to reach the rod cells most successfully. I don't know if anyone's experienced this where if they look to the side, like at night, when when you're trying to find faint objects or in a dark room if you look to the side of where your eyes focus you can uh sorry if you look to the side of an object you're trying to look at you can see it more clearly when it's dark i don't know if you've ever experienced this uh, we have this weird phenomena in our room our bedroom where there's an overhead lamp and there's a light in that lamp that won't go off, but you can't see it if you look directly at it. <laughs> so it's like after a while of living here, I discovered that the light was on by looking not at it, but like if I look in other places of the room, when all the lights are off, I can see this light on. Anyway, it's very strange. Yeah. You, you do that looking through telescopes too you're not supposed to look directly at the object you're supposed to look to the side to the side of the object that's neat and then you can see it better the cones are found in the fovea which is the center of the it's actually not the center it's slightly off center of the retina where the the, the optical nerves uh, goes out i'm sorry uh, the cone cells are in the fovea the center of the retina so there's they're they're all uh, conglomerated right in the center of our visual field um, they hire they handle high acuity visual tasks such as reading and color vision they respond to different lights from three receptors which perceive a full range of color so these three receptors are red green or blue so the receptors are geared to those three colors. Once the light has been processed, an electrochemical signal is then passed via a network of neurons. And he doesn't quite say the neurons um, uh, exit the eyes through the optic nerve over here, which is slightly off center. And if you hold your finger or, or a pencil, easiest is a pencil with an eraser, with one eye closed and you hold it right in front of you, and then keep looking straight ahead but move the object to the side, you will gradually find the place where the object disappears. The eraser on top of the, the, the end of the pencil disappears. And if you're not looking for it, you fill it in. You fill in that, there's a gap in our visual field where that happens. Neurons are designed to help detect the contrasts within an image, such as shadow or edges, and these other cells record this and other information pass an amended electrochemical signal via the optic nerve to the brain. Um, and then visual perception then takes place in the cerebral cortex, which is in the back of the head, and it's a, sort of a unified cortex, whereas the uh, um, cerebellum, or the prefrontal ones are totally divided, the brain is divided, and the electrochemical signals travel through the optic nerve and through the thalamus to the cerebral cortex, and in addition it goes to two other places. First is this thing, the pretectum, which controls the pupils and opens and closes the pupils, so it's like the focusing of a camera and uh, it's like the f-stop on a camera right and then the other one is the superior colicus whatever the hell that is um, and that 
that one makes the eye move in these these jumping uh, activities called saccades or something and um so it's like we have little frames of action so like as a bird flies or people move you know as our visual field moves our eyes move in these little jumpy ways and so the jumps allow for a reset of the information condition and eliminate the blur that would otherwise occur um, if they moved in a smooth action, a smooth action would create a motion blur in the same way that a long exposure photography shot can be used to create a motion blur. So our eyes, the physical function of our eyes literally does all this stuff to our, our visual experience. The thalamus, the projections from the red neuroprocessed in the lateral, blah, blah, blah. It separates the output into two streams. First handles color and fine structure, and the other handles contrast and motion perceived. You know, remember like secondary colors are light and dark, by the way. The first stream is sent to the visual cortex, V1, and it's mapped onto a two-dimensional map to determine overall placement of objects. And the third dimension is created when the map from each eye is compared with the other. And this is binocular vision. The fact that we have two eyes creates this ability to see depths and things in 3D. That's the only way you can see 3D. Um, well, it's not the only way, sorry. It's the best way to see 3D is to have two eyeballs. And they compare the, well, they triangulate the every point within the image. Um, Let's see, the other area of the cortex help further process the image, V, whatever, controls our color perception by helping us separate the color of an object from the color of ambient light. Interesting, the color we perceive an object to be when this process is complete is usually the color we expect to perceive the object in, which suggests that the V2 area is not just handling color processing, but also comparing the color of the processed image with our memories of previous examples of that type. Um, so they normally do a very good job, though they can be pranked with optical illusions, as we've just experienced. Um, and then there's challenges, long side initials, you know, visual stress, um, the stripe patterns that cause uh, seizures <laughs> when people where you see like a strobe light causes seizures look at this all these kids from this cartoon you know um, and this is how uh, certain people with distorted vision see letters what was it this is a um, to a dyslexic C print imagine that color blindness, and they give you these little charts. Uh, let's see, many tests, the condition should, you know. So can you see the number within it, right? And the takeaway, it's complex, more powerful than any computers. The process by which the single form of light is passed through the retina and then processed in the brain is complex and still not completely understood, you know? so. We look at these Abhidharma guys and they came up with one version, but we don't have a complete understanding in the 21st century. What are we on? Whatever it's called. Anyway. Yeah, an another one that's really interesting is uh, temporal recalibration. So 
we hook up the visual with the sound as if they're coming together, but they don't. Yeah. The, the, the <laughs> visual comes first. First. You know that with lightning and thunder. Right. And we do that. A car is coming. You think you, your brain is sticking the sound with the visual, right. but they're not coming in together. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So our, our, you know, our whole person creates this melded experience that's really deeply wired at a, a very low um you know fundamental physical level that that we have this experience of unity and um entityness the five sense faculties coming back to that on page 113 and just briefly and quickly, the, the eye sense faculty is, the quote, sorry, is uh, translucent form derived from the four great elements. That's the base of the ear consciousness, and they all have the same definitions, the same format. Uh, with each of the five sense faculties underneath the quote at the bottom, such as the eye, there's an active homogenous or partially homogenous function. And they have this way of describing like, uh, well-functioning sense organs versus not well-functioning or homogenous or not homogenous so that time and seeing a form it's homogenous it's <clears throat> it's uh, all the the object the sense faculty and the sense base and the consciousness are all happening are all experiencing the same thing whereas the eye faculty at the time of falling asleep and closing the eyes is only partially homogenous. A weird, you know, another weird classification, like with sound is linguistic and non, and here that we have homogenous, and what does that mean? Um, so this notion of being translucent and clear in the bottom quote, from the explication of the five angles, the objects of the eye sense faculty are blue, white, blue, yellow, white, red, and so on. Just as, for example, images appear in a mirror, a crystal, or water. And this is a, the, the comparison that they make for each of the senses. It's that, you know, crystal takes on the light that's shined into it. Um, a mirror reflects what's in front of it. Water reflects in the same way they held the senses the sense faculties reflect what's presented to them. Uh, similarly, the eye sense faculty is translucent and clear, so it's accurate. <laughs> they don't have the, the nuance that we just went through in the Western system that where it's biased. Here, there's an accuracy to it. So when the sense faculty comes into contact with a form, the image of the form appears and generates eye consciousness that is consonant with just that physical object that sense faculties therefore refer to as translucent form, a special type of form. Um, yeah, let's see, some say the discrete physical units of the eye sense faculty reside within the retina, like the opening buds of a sesame flower. So they have this way of describing each of the sense faculties. So just briefly to touch on those, on the remainder of those on page 116, the end of the first full paragraph for the ear sense faculty, it said that um, its discrete physical units are like twisted knots of birch located inside the ear. And then uh, the nose faculty is like metal spoons for smearing eye medicine exists throughout the back of the nose. And the tongue sense faculty is the discrete physical units or molecular structures of the tongue sense faculty resemble half moons 
little half discs. <laughs> um, yet the tongue sense faculty does not permeate the core of the tongue even to the width of a hair tip. So it's just the surface of the tongue. And then finally, the tangibility faculty, the body sense faculty, is discrete physical units are like skin or hide and permeate the entire body. It's a little bit of a tautological way of describing it. Um, and then we have mental object forms. Cool category. Uh, so briefly, in general, as discussed earlier, there's two types of form, those that are objects of sense consciousness, those that are objects of mental cognition. Within this twofold classification, mental object forms belong to the second category. For example, when a coarse material form, such as a composite mass of particles, is reduced to its parts, it becomes progressively subtler until it transcends the domain of sensory cognition. So here, they're taking a conglomerate form and they're separating it until it becomes imperceptible. But even then, it does not become a non-material entity, right? How could matter suddenly become non-matter? It's just imperceptible matter. Uh, since such form cannot be any of the five sensory objects, because you can't perceive it with your senses, or the five sense faculties, it has to be posited as a mental object form. We know its form, but we can't perceive it, so we give it this name mental object form. Thus, the definition of mental object form is that which is capable of materiality that appears in mental consciousness alone, but that is not a supportive sense element. The phrase mental consciousness alone precludes it being the object of cognition of any of the five sense doors, and the phrase not a supportive sense element is used in order to preclude the five sense faculties, such as the eyes, from being at mental object forms, even though they are forms perceptible to mental consciousness alone. So the, the, the sense faculties also are not perceptible to normal cognition but only to supercognition, which is uh, uh, conducted through mental consciousness, that those who have clairvoyance or special visual uh, sensory power are able to see the sense faculties, but they do it with their mind, not with their sense faculty. Um, let's see. Uh, page 120, what is a mental object form? It should be viewed in terms of five types. And this is from, let's see, the compendium of Dharma. Uh, the five types are form emerging from a process of deconstructing, deconstruction, which we just went through, deconstructing aggregate matter into subtle particles. Two, the form of open space. Three, form of vows derived through a rite, and form that is imagined four and five form arising from meditative expertise. They believe in all this stuff, so somehow they have to describe it. Of these form emerging from the process of deconstruction, first the subtle particles that emerge from the process of mentally de deconstructing coarse material form, which can be perceived by mental cognition alone. They didn't have the, the physical capacity to divide matter up into subtle matter, so they say mentally deconstructed by inference, they're saying, well, it's made of parts and particles, so it has to have imperceptible particles that make it up. <laughs> um, then we skip to the next paragraph. The form of open space refers to the vacant space that appears as a whitish vacuity 
To mental consciousness alone in general, although the widest vacuity of vacant space is a, that is essential for eye consciousness to perceive a distant mountain is posited as the form of open space. Here what is being referred to as a mental object form is specifically the widest vacuity of vacant space that appears to mental cognition alone. So they seem to be distinguishing between two types of vacant space. One is like the space that intervenes between us and objects that uh, becomes uh, especially pronounced when there's far away objects. And then there's the empty space of when our mind becomes blank <laughs> and we experience a blankness. <laughs> um, that this is because the whitish vacuity of vacant space that appears to eye consciousness is a visible form. Um, anyway, th that's like sort of convoluted, but interesting that they're trying to to like describe all these things. Form of vows derived through a right refers to Barry, non. Yes, ma'am. Sorry to interrupt, but it just reminds me of one of the colors being like mist. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You know what? So the sub secondary colors, it seems to me, are not like the primary colors in, in being like alternative um, wavelengths of light, but they're like taking the primary colors and altering their hue or their intensity or their vividness with other factors like light and shade and mist and clouds and, and stuff. To the original forms, and so what they leave out is they leave out all the other colors like green and and yellow and purple, which we're no used to as like non-primary colors, and they just skip that and they assume that of course yeah there are these all these other colors that are created by mixture of the primary colors, but there's this other quality of of the object of vision, which is that we see the same colors in different. Uh, contextual environmental situations in a different way when when uh, the, the the light or the conditions alter the the same color and that's what it seems is the secondary colors as opposed to derivatives really of the primary colors uh, forms from a vow such indicative form includes the form derived from taking part of moksha vows negative commitments and interim precepts they're called non-indicative form in that they do not reveal the person's intention that is what motivated them to the minds of others the prati moksha vow for instance are received through a right in the presence of preceptor and from that angle they are described as a form derived from a right alternatively this term should be applied to such form that is derived through a right and so on. so why are they trying to describe form, a, a, a vow as form, is really the question. And with this, with this one, it's like that really begs the question, why are they describing a vow as form, as a type of form? What, what do they think about vows that's different than the way we think about vows that leads them to Cynthia? Does it have to do with it um, having a, performing a function? It seems to. It seems to be that, like for them, vows are uh, perceptible things, things that are perceptible to arias. Arias can see what vows you've taken, what empowerments you've received, and whether you've kept them or not. And so, 
Sorry. Another aspect when they talked about something being broken, you can break a vow. Yeah, yeah. And you can only break oh. form, right? Right. So it has to be a certain type of form, Anya. Uh, yeah, I mean, is it sort of like it's a substance that adheres to a person or is in a person? It maybe? is. It is in some strange way. They, they have this experience of Arya's being able to perceive whether a person has kept their vow or not. And so how do they describe that? How do they explain that? <laughs> It's really unusual that they would deal with these things. Imagine form refers, for example, to the skeletons that are clearly perceived as pervading the face of the earth by meditative states focused on repulsiveness. So the, the nine stages of decomposition of a human body ends in skeletons. And through this practice, one can eventually see skeletons pervading the entire earth is, is what they report. And so what is that? or the vivid perception of five sensory objects such as horses and so on in a dream. What is that type of form? Such things are called imagined forms because apart from the perception of skeletons pervading the earth by the meditative attention focused on repulsiveness, and similarly apart from the appearance of things in dreams, in reality they do not pervade the face of the earth and dream images are not real, they don't exist at all. And finally, form arising from meditative expertise refers, for example, to fire, water, and so on, the elements that are clearly perceived in meditative concentration that mentally projects fire and water and so on in every direction. <laughs> These are taken for granted. They are called forms arising from meditative expertise since it's through the power of obtaining mastery over concentration that everything is pervaded by fire and water. Everything's turned into fire and water. <laughs> Skipping the quote, does mental cognition be referred to in the context of the phrase, it is to mental cognition alone that the five types of mental object form appear should be understood as being non-conceptual, i.e. direct mental consciousness, given that the apparent object of the conceptual mind is permanent, i.e. object universals, it would be difficult to posit it as mental object form. So he just contradicted the whole thing. They just dismissed the whole thing. Uh, so generally, there's consensus among classical Buddhist scholars in how mental object form must be understood in terms of a form that is the object of mental cognition alone. So it's not real form. That said, there's a divergence of opinion on whether it should be further differentiated into five types, and also whether all five are material forms or not. And he goes through some variations on this, which we don't have to get into. Um, and on the next pages, 121 and 22, he has uh, quotes from this Korean master, Wong Chuk's commentary to Unraveling the Intention Sutra, this famous author in Korea, this famous Buddhist master in Korea, wrote commentaries to a lot of sutras that were amazing, and uh, some made it back to Tibet. They were so po uh, pop influential, they went through China and into Tibet. And he uh, gives a, has a great commentary on the Samdhinir Mochina Sutra. Um, I'm not really concerned about the content, but I thought it was amazing that these authors quoted that. And they also entertain the mind-only school. Uh, and then they talk about Chandra Kirti of the Prasangika school. And um, Chandra Kirti is pretty simple and straightforward. A cut and dried form that belongs to the class of mental objects that is an object perceived by mental consciousness such form does not does ex, such form does exist in a dream thus he states that imagined forms such as dreams 
objects appear vividly to mental consciousness are mental object forms. I'm sorry, I, I was trying to make a point that isn't there. <laughs> Um, on the bottom of the page here, thus Chandra Kirti states that non-indicative forms such as vows and negative commitments and so on are mental object forms and not real matter, not real form. It also appears that he accepts the other three mental object forms constitute fully qualified material forms. It, he seems to accept that the others are actually matter. Anyway. The causal primary elements. And here we have this interesting uh, conundrum of there being two ways of looking at the primary elements earth, water, fire, air. One is as powers, as uh, like, you know, the gravitational field of solidity or moistness and the, the, uh, the properties of the four elements excuse me, and the other is that the four elements are made out of particles. They are the particles that make up the subtle particles that make up conglomerated matter. And we don't get quite a, a very clear picture of it, but in other uh, texts describe more clearly that, um, well, well, actually we'll come to it. He, de he describes the number of particles, if, if, if I can go quickly through that. Um, he revisits the definition of matter from a sangha. What is it that's presented as the aggregate of form? So the skanda of form, which includes all of the matter of the outer uh, sense objects and all of the matter of the inner sense faculties, as opposed to that which is the object of visual consciousness, as opposed to that which is the object of tangible consciousness, which is really, form is really the object of tangible consciousness, not a visual uh, shape and color, but they're called form. Anyway, um, uh, it refers to anything that's capable of materiality, including everything, including the four great elements and those derived from them. So we have a primary form, the four great elements, and derivative form. Derivative form is easy. That's what we went through, and that's what we experience. Um, Skipping the next paragraph, it says, in brief, Nalanda scholars take as their shared standpoint that material entities emerge through the aggregation of subtle particles forming coarse levels of, coarser levels of reality, and that it's through the combination of numerous atoms that the diverse forms of coarse everyday objects emerge. However, to understand this essential point about how physical phenomena arise, it's crucial to gain a proper understanding of the primary causal elements so present below in a more extensive way, how they're addressed. And uh, in general, such texts relate numerous ways in which the primary elements, acts, primary elements act as the cause of their derivative forms. For example, they speak of the following five types of ways in which the primary elements cause are the cause of conglomerated form, derivative form. Namely, they act as the generating cause, the supporting cause, the stabilizing cause, the dependent cause, and the enhancing cause. And he goes through each of those and describes them. I'll skip that. Um, on the next page, 
um, after the quote from investigating characteristics, it says, thus two different etymologies are provided in the meaning of the term primary elements. One is that when the diverse resultant material forms come to exist, they do so with characteristics such as solidity and so on. Alternatively, they are so-called because they increase the subsequent stream of the primary elements themselves and propagate the births of sentient beings, which I don't really understand clearly, to be honest, but I think is a really clunky way of trying to describe these two aspects of primary matter. The, the elements, the four great elements as being these properties and also the building blocks of um, physical matter. Uh, skipping ahead, let's see. Um, so on the next page, 128, there's a quote from uh, Jinnaputra, Yashamitra's explanation of the treasury of knowledge. They're called elements because they maintain their specific characteristics and they maintain their derivative form. So there's the characteristics of the four elements and then the derivative form that arise from them as causes. This means that they are elements because they maintain their specific characteristics, such as solidity for earth and so on, and they maintain the form of the eyes and so on derived from them. So they have the property as well as they are what uh, gets conglomerated into uh, what we call form. And skipping the next paragraph of the quote, the text says, thus the meaning of the word element pertains both to essential nature and to cause, essential nature being the properties of the other primary elements and cause being their, their uh, function as con uh, producing conglomerated matter. Um, let's see. Okay, then I'm page one. A quick question. Yeah, for sure. So and I don't know why this is confusing to me because I feel like this is what is being explained, but the subtle particles out of which coarse matter that we experience, the subtle particles are some form of these basic primary elements. Yeah, yeah. And we're it's actually like just at the point. Go back and forth so much. They're making so many distinctions. Sometimes I feel like, is that a main point that that's what the subtle particles are? Well, their, their point is that all matter has these four qualities in it. <laughs> yeah. That was a good one. All matter has these four qualities in it, but then there's, there's matter that has a predominance. And how do you explain that predominance? There can only be a predominance of one of the four or two of, or three of the four of the elements if those properties are somehow embodied in actual particles of matter and certain phenomena have more of one of the four elements than the other. That's the, the quandary that they're trying to um, explain in this really belabored, and this whole section I found to be terribly convoluted. Um, but there was one place, okay, okay, here, page 134, and for, uh, Cynthia, there's a quote from the great treatise on differentiation, explains this point, and it's very long. And then after that quote, so for us, it's on page 134 after the first quote, thus as explained in the text of the lower Abhidharma system, Vaibhashikas assert that even one aggregated atom must possess all eight substance, 
substantial particles. The particles which are, so an atom is made up of smaller particles that are uh, eight, at least eight in number, and those eight are the four primary elements, are each one particle, and plus the four uh, substantial particles of form, smell, taste, and tactility. So here we get an attempt to describe how aggregate matter happens and how some things have a smell and some things don't and some things have a have um, have uh, visibility and some things don't and some things have tastes and some things so and the oddest thing is that sound is missing right and so when they list the the substantial particles of form smell taste and tactility this is where they're using form as the object of the visual perception that has color and shape which is strange but they do so then they say they do not merely assert that these substantial particles constitute fully qualified earth water and so on sautrotics on the other hand do assert that material phenomena are composed of the accumulation of the eight substantial particles that we just went through and they consider these eight substantial particles to be more like potentials or seeds as opposed to actual particles of earth, water, fire, air, and so forth. They maintain that when a particular primary element is perceived, it is manifest, and when not imperceptible, it remains unmanifest, and it's not necessarily the case that the primary elements remain manifest at all times. Therefore, although earth, water, and so on are fully present in all physical entities as potentials or seeds, there's no need for actual earth, water, and so on to be present. <laughs> so this huge, long convoluted presentation of primary elements really uh, aimed at trying to explain how uh, the primary elements function both as properties that pervade all types of matter and how um, different type different examples of matter can be predominantly one or another of the elements how you know how, how is that and it's extremely convoluted and confusing and and not that important and not that helpful but it's of interest that they're trying to like you know piece this thing together of how do you get from the macro to the micro um let's see And, and here we have an example of that being explained. And, uh, and for those of us with uh, a tangible object of uh, called a, a book, it occurs on page 138 of that tangible object. And for Cynthia, who's dealing with uh, a mental object form called a book, <laughs> it's, uh, it's after the quote, there's a quote from the text of the Middle Way School too. There are numerous their statements about how all four primary elements are present as elements. And he quotes Nagarjuna's precious garland. So I've skipped a bunch of pages, skipped a bunch of text. And I also just touched this thing. So if you can't hear me, let me know. Can you guys hear me? Still? Yeah, thank you. Okay, so after that, uh, there's then a quote from the commentary, Chandrakirti too says in commentary in the 400 stanzas, so skipping that, there's a paragraph that says, to summarize the text of the lower Abhidharma system, it is said there's no difference between the four primary elements and the elements of the four primary elements. <laughs> that was, this is the most confusing thing. It's like, 
and the translator, you know, the translators presumably are using the same term elements in these really three different ways because the texts use it in the same term, I guess. Otherwise, they would have given different English words. But the four primary elements, buta, actually, they give the sense, they're different Sanskrit words, and they're giving the same English, which is terribly frustrating. It is said there's no difference between the four primary elements as buta, and, and we've seen the term buta in other courses where buta means thing, uh, being, and the elements, dhatu, as in the sense of like properties of the four primary elements, of the four primary elements. And that all composite matter possess the four primary elements since they possess all the functions of the four primary elements. That's the lower school's point of view. In contrast, the texts of the higher Abhidharma systems as well as those of the middle way school differentiate between the four primary elements and the elements of the four primary elements. <laughs> Thus they explain that even though all composite form possesses the elements of the four primary elements, they do not necessarily present the four primary elements themselves. The substance of water in a composite of subtle particles, for example, is the water element or potentiality, but not water itself, right? So if you have a, a cup of water, there's particles of water there, um, and those particles, because they're matter, have eight, are made up of uh, subtle particles that have eight parts. That include all the particle, uh, all the elements, right? Plus four of the sense object possibilities, <laughs> and uh, and then there's water as a conglomerate entity is different than the water that's the, one of the four subtle particles, right? They have to somehow distinguish those two things. Um, And then we have the conclusion of this section on matter, for what it matters, which says on page 140, for those of us that have a tangible object form called a book, in brief, with respect to material form, the first of the five basic categories of reality, five basic categories of reality, so that's a little quiz. Uh, the important points to understand are the nature or definition of matter, how the ten obstructive physical entities and mental object form are posited, the distinction between primary elements and their derivative forms, and how the substances of the four primary elements need not be understood in terms of actual material entities, but can also exist as potentials. It's a great summary of the four major important points of this whole section, which I think every one of us would be very hard-pressed to explain clearly what their view is on these, but they're grappling with trying to explain the world. It's really fascinating. Anyway, he says at the beginning of that paragraph, for they, whoever, in brief with respect to material form, the first of the five basic categories of reality, just to close, what are the five basic categories of reality in this system? The first one we know is matter. Anyone know the second one? Remember these five categories? They're not the five skandhas, but they're similar. They're close. So mind? Uh, mind. What kind of mind? Uh, okay, mind. And then what's the, the third one? Or a another one? Are there nafs in here? They are. Non-associated formations are in here. That's we we got three. 
What else? Um, you want to roll? Unconditioned. The unconditioned is is in here. So that gives us four out of the five. And the other ones that you mentioned are all conditioned. And there's one more condition category that we haven't mentioned yet. Come on, folks, help me out here. Um, there's 51 of them. That's a hint. Oh, mental factors. Mental factors. Thank you. Right. Okay, so the five categories, there's four of them are compounded and or conditioned phenomena. And those are matter, mind, mental factors, and non-associated formations. And then the fifth category of basic reality is non-compounded, uncreated phenomena. Just to remember the sort of big picture of this whole classificatory system. And now we're going to go next into non-associated formative factors and see how they grapple with things like people and time and so forth. So uh, let's close with our dedication of merit. Sorry, overtime. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the Grades. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank that, you. Thanks, Derek. Good night. That was a, a difficult section to go through, but thank you for putting up with it. Nice Thanks, Derek. Bye. Bye.